We'll look at verses 15 down to the end of the chapter, 15 to 23 uh, today. In a few moments, we're going to install two uh, elders to our council. In the Bible, when such an event occurs, it always seems to be accompanied by much prayer and even fasting. And so in our case, much prayer has uh, surrounded our selection process over the last couple of months. But it's not just such a beginning that prayer is in order. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles frequently ask the people in the church to pray for them. And the apostles often recorded their prayers for the church. So that uh, we need only read the Acts and the Epistles to see that this whole relationship between the church and her leaders is one that's bathed in prayer. So how ought we to pray? Dear Lord, bless the council. Sure, but is that all? How ought the elders to pray for the congregation? Lord, bless this family and that, and uh, Father, make so-and-so well again. Is that all there is to this? If that's all we do, no wonder it seems like a waste of time. So this morning I want us to consider again one biblical call to prayer, which gives us some concrete guidance from the Lord. This is a prayer offered by the Apostle Paul for the church in, court, in Ephesus. And surely it consists of things that the leaders ought to be praying for the church in Ephesus. But this is also the Apostle's prayer for those leaders of that congregation. Surely then it's appropriate uh, a model for you to pray for the leaders of this chapel. No matter what our situation, here we have a great passage on how to pray for one another. So let me just read it. Ephesians 1, 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We won't exhaust this text. This is one of those sentences of Paul that just go on and on and on, and it would take weeks to, uh, to exhaust all that he says in here. But I want to just draw from this two things, two exhortations concerning prayer. Now, we'll spend most of our time on the second one, which actually has three parts. So you might think this is a three-point sermon. That's the second point. But first, there is a first exhortation that is simpler, and it's just uh, the first point. And that... I seem to be stuck here. That uh, first point is simply this. Give thanks. 
for what God has done. Give thanks for what God has done. That's a certain kind of praying, isn't it? Give thanks for what God has done. According to Romans chapter 1, ingratitude is one of the most basic kinds of sin. People everywhere see, see uh, evidence of God's existence, but fail to give thanks to him. And in that neglect to thankfully acknowledge our creator, we become guilty. We stand without excuse then. Oh, but it's not just the ignorant pagans who fail to give thanks. God's own people have a long history of ingratitude. Israel grumbled for 40 years in the wilderness while they were eating manna from heaven that God dropped on the ground for them every day. And to this day, many churches are filled with grumbling in spite of God's goodness and God's grace to his church. So what a contrast to this text, which calls us to give thanks for what God has done in our midst. We see it in verse 15 and 16. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Those are not just empty words of flattery from an apostle with an idealistic, romanticized view of what the church must be like in Ephesus. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere. He knew this church. He knew all of its problems. He addresses those problems. But rather than focusing on what he knew was wrong, rather than focusing on all the things that needed attention, Paul first focused on the great things that God had done in that place. And he had done quite a bit. In, the, in this chapter, in verses 3 to 10, he praises, Paul praises God for his great salvation planned in eternity past. In verses 11 to 14, he reflects on how God has lavished that grace on Jew and Gentile alike now. And then here in verse 15 to 16, Paul re reflects on how God's great salvation has come to Ephesus. The gospel has transformed these people's lives. People believe things they didn't used to believe. They love people they used to hate. And for that, the apostle never stopped giving thanks for this evidence of God's mighty work in this town. And so this morning, I call on us to give thanks for what God has done in this place. You people of God, the Lord has blessed you with his salvation. And now he's blessed you with godly leaders. Do you know how many churches, how many congregations there are where the gospel is never heard anymore? Do you know how many churches struggle under the leadership of men not worthy for the, of the office they hold? Do you know how many churches, how many church councils are themselves torn apart by bickering and strife and unbelief but God has blessed us with the sweetness of the gospel. Give him thanks. Now you may say, well, we already know that. Yes, but we don't automatically do this. It's so easy to grumble about what's wrong. It's so easy to demand, why doesn't the council do this? Or why doesn't somebody do that? 
But God would have us start by thanking him for what he's already done in this place. And you elders on the council also need to hear this exhortation. There's a danger in dealing with all the problems in the church, one mess after another, which is what councils have to do. But you can become a cynic. After a while, all you can do is assume the worst about everyone. Your brothers, look around you. Every person you see is a trophy of God's grace. Every person you see is so precious to the Lord Jesus Christ that he spilled his lifeblood for that person. Everyone you see is so valuable to the Lord that the church is not complete without that person. We leaders never have the right to say to someone, we don't need you here, go somewhere else. Instead, God calls us to give thanks, to never stop giving thanks for what he has done in these people whom he loves. This morning I call you to a conscious, disciplined gratitude that looks for the evidence of God's grace in one another and continually bows in wonder and gratitude for what God has done. That's the first point. But most of the passage is given to a second truth, which is this. Pray to know the fullness of God. Give thanks. That's where we start. But pray to know the fullness of God. It's been well observed that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. That's true whether you're investing in the stock market or trying to fix your own computer. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So how is it that God's people settle for knowing so little of the faith we claim to believe. Paul prays for the Ephesians and teaches us to pray for one another that we might know the fullness of God. Actually, there are several things which Paul uh, prays that they would know fully. Three things I'm going to mention. Pray that they would know the fullness of God himself. Pray to know the fullness of God himself. That's the point of verse 17. I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Now, folks, knowing God is not automatic, you know. One can sit in church for years and never really know God very much. The truth is it happened to Philip, one of Jesus' Disciples. He traveled with Jesus for three years, and yet just before Jesus' death, he said to Philip, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, don't you know me? Knowing God fully ought to be the highest goal of every person. In Philippians 3, the apostle Paul sets that forth as his passion. He says, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know Christ. New Year's resolution, there you go. Even Jesus acknowledged this to be the most important thing when he prayed, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. This is eternal life, to know Christ. Pray to know the fullness of God himself. 
Then secondly, pray to know the fullness of God's plan. Not just the fullness of God himself, but the fullness of God's plan. These days, everyone has a different spin on what the church ought to be. Some see the church as uh, the Christian alternative to the entertainment industry. Some see uh, it as a Christian alternative to uh, government social programs. Some see it as the Christian political action committee. Some see it as a depository of ancient traditions. And there are a myriad of other spins on the agenda of the church. So which is right? What should our hope be for the church? You see, there's something about each of those things that I mentioned. There's some little kernel of truth about them. We ought to be excited about Jesus and singing joyfully. We ought to care for those suffering and be thinking about how to minister to them. We ought to make Christ's dominion known in the whole world in every aspect of life. We ought to hold fast to ancient truths. But is that all there is to do? Might there be another even more important thing where we should invest our time and energy and talents and resources? Well, the leaders of the church will lead the body down some path. What path? The forces pulling on the church are enormous. The expectations of members themselves are are, are overwhelming sometimes. The models of seemingly successful churches seem irrefutable. That's why we need to pray that we would know the fullness of God's plan, not just what everybody else is doing. What's God's plan? Such is the exhortation of verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, that you may know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Amid all the hype in the church. Only a few are really listening to what God has to say about his agenda. But that's what we need to know. Paul calls it the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by his spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And this mystery of Christ, this plan of God is all about the advance of the gospel throughout the world. So how do we apply that to Isaac Lake Chapel? Requires a knowledge of the fullness of God's plan that none of us quite have. So dear saints, I call you to pray for your elders. Pray that God would give them wisdom on high to have the right agenda. And your elders of the church, I call you and then at the same time, to be praying for this congregation. God did not design his church to sit in ignorance and silence while the expert did the experts do the work. God seemed fit to fill his whole church with his Holy Spirit, to dwell every believer, to give gifts of grace to every single uh, one of his children, to make every member an integral part of the body. But without the wisdom of God's Spirit orchestrating all of this, The church just becomes chaotic. So I call you elders to pray. Pray that we might know clearly the fullness of God's plan. And finally, a third thing. Pray to know the fullness of God's power. Pray to know the fullness of God's power. Pray to know the fullness of God himself. 
Pray to know the fullness of his plan. Pray to know the fullness of God's power. In recent years, the church has gained uh, a remarkable uh, experience in uh, wielding power. It's learned something about political power. Churches are very involved in politics. It's become rich and often wields the clout that wealth brings. It's become highly educated and speaks with powerful voice sometimes. It has become media savvy and can communicate its message with convincing artistic sophistication. So why don't we see the enemies of the gospel falling at our feet in repentance and faith? Because no matter how well you know God, no matter how well you understand his plan, the power of human invention is not enough to do God's work. That was God's warning given through the prophet Zechariah. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And people, the promise of the gospel is nothing less than the promise of God at work. There's a great example of this in 2 Kings 6. The armies of the king of Aram, the enemy of Judah, are surrounding the prophet Elisha. And when the armies of the king surround this prophet, his servant was terrified. They were about to be overrun. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. And uh, Elisha answered, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And so Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and as he looked, he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Elisha prayed that his servant might know the fullness of God's unseen power. Now, what was true for Elisha is even more true today. Jesus promised his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. On another occasion, the apostle spoke of this power when he said, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world, on the contrary, they, are, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. But the power of God is not exerted the way we expect power to be exerted. Instead, it appears in the midst of weakness. We hear that in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, but we have this treasure of the gospel. We have this treasure in clay pots to show that the all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. And he says it again in 2 Corinthians 12. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. 
You see, knowing God's power is not the triumphalism that we might expect. It is the life-giving power of God working in the midst of our daily dying. This is incomprehensible to us. But this strength through weakness, through dying, is the only way God works, that God's work will be accomplished. Therefore, we pray that we might know the fullness of God's power. That's the pattern of verse 19. I pray also that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Well, it's not some second-rate power, which is ineffective in the real world. Look at the description of this power in verses 20 to 23. It's the power by which Jesus was raised from the dead. It's the power by which Jesus ascended into heaven and was given authority over everything. It's the power by which God now is subduing his enemies. It's the power with which he fills his church. (laughs) Dear people of God, this is what we need. We don't necessarily need stronger personalities or better programs. We need the resurrection power of Jesus, the power of his spirit at work among us. But that you can't just conjure up. So pray that God would make known the fullness of his power in this place as we die to self and die to the world and admit our weakness. You elders, it doesn't help to rail on God's people to get them to do what they ought to do. Pray that God will give them the power to do his will. And you people of God, you need to understand the council of the church has no more power than you do. They can't make things happen just by declaring something. So pray that they will know the fullness of God's power, the power of his spirit. This morning we're about to install two elders to our council. On the one hand, this is an absurd thing we do. You already think about it? These men are not smart enough. Sorry, they're not. Nor am I. Nor is this is such wisdom naturally within their grasp. And even if they knew what to do, they don't have the power to make it happen. And if they could lead perfectly, you wouldn't follow them anyway. Because <laughs> you're just like them. Ah, but while this is absurd, according to human wisdom, this is how God works among us. So counsel and congregation like this morning, I call you to pray. First, give thanks for the miracle of grace which God has worked in this place. And then pray that we might know his fullness. Pray that we might know the fullness of God himself. Pray that we might know the fullness of God's plan. Pray that we might know the fullness of God's power, that power of the life-giving spirit working in the midst of our weakness. Pray, pray, pray. Let me close with an illustration from history. A true account of a praying church. 
1727, a Moravian community of Hernhut in Saxony organized a prayer watch. And this was their plan. They would have the participants divided, men and women. And out of each group, they would find, they would ask for one man and one woman to commit to pray for one hour out of the 24 hours of the day. And then another to commit to pray for the next hour and another for the next. So that you have two people, one man over here and one woman over there, always praying around the clock for the advance of the gospel. And you talk about an, uh, uh, a huge plan, an ambitious plan. How long could such a plan? Would they make it through a whole week, you think? Would we make it through a whole week of that? I'm not sure. So how long did it last? This round-the-clock praying continued in this Moravian church uninterrupted for 100 years. I didn't make that up. For 100 years. After about 65 years, the Moravians had sent 300 missionaries from that church. And not only did their own church grow, but the missionary churches which were begun around the world grew three times bigger and faster than the home church. Historians marvel at the great awakening revivals of England and America in the 18th century during which hundreds of thousands of people were converted. One has to wonder if those victories were not largely won by simple Moravian believers who during that whole time of history were on their knees round the clock asking God, Lord, make us a praying church. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we don't even know anything like what the Moravians did. We think of our Korean brothers and sisters who have a prayer meeting every morning about 4.30 or 5. We think of that as just such outrageous discipline that it would never work for us. And most of us, Lord, for all that we know, we don't pray much, frankly. Father, we have a long way to go. May we listen to what your word tells us. May we learn to pray. May we learn how your power works. It's not through our power. It's through our weakness. Father, we're asking you to do something in us that we know we can't do, we would never do ourselves. But as you see fit, may we know your fullness in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.